I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive Writing. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Rachel Zoff, poet, scholar, and teacher, author of five books of poetry, among them Neighbor Procedure, Human Resources, Janie's Arcadia of 2014, which received a Lambda Literary Award nomination, who currently continues working on the Janie Project with all of its facets, book, film, sound, performance, polyvocal actions. And is, I hear, three-quarters of the way through a book-length study called A Language No One Speaks, The Dangerous, Perhaps, of Monstrous Witnessing, and who, I'm glad to say, is currently co-teaching a course on art and writing with Sharon Hayes. And by Charles Bernstein, poet, theorist, essayist, scholar, extraordinary interviewer, whose latest of his many, many books is The Pitch of Poetry, published by the University of Chicago Press, and just before that, Recalculating, a volume of poems also from Chicago, University of Chicago Press, who is a beloved teacher here at the University of Pennsylvania and is with me, I'm glad to say, co-founder and co-director of Penn Sound. And by Ron Silliman, who has written and edited more than 35 books, including The Alphabet, a thousand-plus page poem in 26 parts, each titled after a letter of that aforementioned writing system, The Alphabet, composed and published between 1979 and 2004, who is now engaged in another big, huge project called Universe, whose essays, especially Disappearance of the Word, Appearance of the World, and The New Sentence, and others have been widely republished and discussed and taught, and who, I'm also happy to say, teaches an undergraduate poetry workshop here at the Writer's House. Well, hey, guys. Thanks for joining me for this conversation. Good Glad to, be, to here. be here. Yeah, Ron, good to see you. This is like a... I should sort of stipulate for those listening to this recording that this is one of these days at the Writer's House where there's just like poetry from morning to late at night so we're we're here for a long day and this is a great respite where we're going to talk about two poems by Naomi Raplansky born in 1918 and alive and well at 98 years old at the time of this recording the first poem that we'll talk about in syrup in syrup was written in 1946 published on December 30th 1947 in the communist literary magazine New Masses under the title Dulce et Decorum, and republished as In Syrup, In Syrup, in Raplansky's 1952 book, Ring Song. The second poem, Ring Song, the title poem of that National Book Award nominated volume, originally written in 1944, it was republished later in a shortened version in her 1988 chapbook, 21 Poems Old and New. So here now is Naomi Raplansky performing In Syrup, In Syrup, and Ring Song. In syrup, in syrup, in syrup we drown, who sell ourselves with a sparkling smile, padded with pathos, our winding sheet, the bomb bounded 
by buxom beauties, horror gelded by the happy ending. How can we swim who hold to our halos? Down we go down in syrup, in syrup. Ring song. When that joy is gone for good, I move the arms beneath the blood. When my blood is running wild, I sew the clothing of a child. When that child is never born, I lean my breast against the thorn. When the thorn brings no reprieve, I rise and live, I rise and live. When I live from hand to hand, nude in the marketplace I stand. When I stand and I'm not sold, I build a fire against the cold. When the cold does not destroy, I leap from ambush on my joy. Ron Silliman, is there something that unify that brings the two together? Is there a topical interest, a, an approach, a style? I well, think you think there is. So I'd there love to are hear it. there are a couple of things. There is uh, first of all the uh, formal structure of the rhymed couplets, which, in that wonderful close listening interview, she characterizes as having uh, come from Mother Goose, and obviously also from the uh, Songs of Innocence from uh, William Blake and maybe from her immediate uh, circle in the Upper West Side, people like Margaret Weiss Brown, who was writing... Uh, Good Night Moon. Right. The two of them were there in circles of uh, intellectual Jewish, not always heterosexual women on the Upper West Side. <laughs> <laughs> Are you outing Margaret Wise Brown on the air? No, you're not. No, I wouldn't. Do, I wouldn't do that. That's yeah. been done decades ago. Right. Are you outing Naomi Replanster? <laughs> no, no. I think that's already happened. Um, <laughs> Charles, uh, Ron is referring to uh, a close listening episode. You're the host and producer, and the two of us interviewed Naomi Replansky in her apartment, and we would, I think, all recommend humbly that people who are interested in more information about. Naomi's life and work. It's it's an hour plus interview that we did. Yeah, it turned out to be directly across the street from where I lived for two decades. Can I ask as a follow up to the first question I asked Ron Charles? Um, there's something about particularly Ring Song that really is alluring for you as a poet. Uh, this uh, in recalculating in your own book, we see a return to this kind of writing for you. Um, so you've thought a lot about this. Can you say something about why this is so uh, surprisingly daring and complicated to do, to do this kind of couplet making? Well, for one thing, the, the in, in, intense political content 
or affect to the poem combined with what's often thought of as nonsense verse or light or silly in the terms of Mother Goose. That's where the Blake, you know, combines because Blake is that way too. But it makes it very fiery and and uh, and powerful. You almost get caught up in what would seem to be a kind of silliness, but there's nothing silly about the poem. So the radicality yeah. might be. Uh, away from a certain sense of a proletarian directness toward the broad masses of the people, which she has some relationship to, at least in time and place, and going back to this other kind of structure, which is almost, which is, seems to be primal. I want to turn to Rachel and ask Rachel in a second if you would comment on the topical radicality here, the politics of any of this stuff. Um, but before we turn to you for that, um, Charles mentioned the number of couplets, and it should be said here that Ring Song, the title poem, published in the 1952 book of that title, is a longer poem. Right, that's that 11, starts the other is ellipsis. seven. Yeah. The other the is seven. And the seven, other is the a chapbook from yeah. 1988, and she preferred to read that because she admires the work that she's done to make the poem shorter, and I guess at some point, we should turn to both poems are different. You might argue de-radicalized, at least from the communist context in which both were first written. But, but Rachel, start us off. You know, Raplansky is a political person. Are these poems political in any sense? Sure. I mean, um, I mean, I'm not as well versed as someone like Ron at the in the all the communist um, minimalisms of these pieces, but in terms of uh, In Syrup and Syrup, with the the first version, which we didn't hear, um, has the reference to the Wolf, Wilfred Owen So the poem. first version is published in the New Masses in 1947. 47, yeah. No, Can you spell out the, ref, the reference to... Um, which, uh, what's the name of the poem? Sorry, I didn't Dolce et decorum yeah. est pro patria mori. Yeah. And it means in English... Sweet and right to die for your country, right? It is, it is sweet and Which right. Which Wilfred Owen ironized. Right. And um, what was the name Fam of the poem? Famously. And, that, and that's, that's, that's the, the name, name of his poem, poem which right. is okay. his turn away from uh, the patriotism re referencing World War One. Right. So in terms of radicality, I mean, uh, this piece uh, being published in 47, it was must have been written, you know, probably a year before then. So it's right, right after the war. It's right after Second World War. We have... You know, a piece that um, I mean, I'm just going to go with the more recent, the, the Ring Song version. Um, you know, the bomb, the, the bomb bounded by books and beauties alone, right? It's got this obviously the alliteration, but the the kind of sarcasm of it. I mean, we know she was a munitions worker during the war, but I, I'm personally interested by um, lines like "horror gelded by the happy ending." Um, so horror, the the horror. I mean, what I'm getting from this is like that the horror of war, the, the everything that happened in that war has been you know castrated by this kind of fake uh, relation that that we that we have created as as yeah. winners. It's almost very Trumpian, right? The, well, the, the, the bomb the, has to refer to the bomb. There, that is the way the war ended. In yeah, the I mean that's that's one reference. But I mean, so one thing I thought so of called happy ending. Yeah, I mean, but uh, I mean, I just think there's multiple. Ways of reading this. I mean, it, one. I was interested in the in the first version of this piece how it says how swim, how survive, and survive is such a charged word now in relation to the Second World War in terms of survivors of the camps. Um, I, I doubt it was in the same kind of um, you know used in the same way 
that early, but it, that disappears, right? That disappears in uh, the the in later the version. version yeah. um, and it's just, yeah, I, I'm interested in how it, the, the the its base is is questioning our sense of responsibility going so forward. The the the, the um, aforementioned earlier version of the poem in the, that appeared in the New Masses ends with different two different couplets and as follows: first, the third from last couplet, horror gelded by the happy ending, which is the same in the That's later in version. That's in both. Yeah. yeah. Then arm kick useless, leg kick. Helpless, mm-hmm. how swim, how survive, in syrup, in syrup. Um, the, what's the syrup? What syrup? I think syrup literally is uh, capitalism. And that goes back to at the very beginning where we've seen it for the first time. And there's not even a period before we get to we who sell ourselves with a sparkling smile, which I really like that that second couplet is an addition to the later version. And I hear the swimming metaphor in both as relating to the problems of sailors after um, boats are torpedoed and what the water is like as fuel uh, spills out into it, and as sailors spill out into it, mostly in the Pacific, which is where my father served, but uh, in the Atlantic as as well. It's also, I think, what ties it to the slave image in the other poem. Well, um, can we spell that out? Um, so I take it that the um, syrup commercialized and advertised is mixed in there mm-hmm. with the syrupy, difficult swimming. Uh, so we're drowning in the crass commercialism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's My, also that kind of sickly sweetness of, of syrupy behavior, right? The right. fake behavior. And we yeah. go from that to um, the winding sheet. So we'd go, we'd go, we go immediately to death. And then the bomb bounded by Bucks and Beauties, there, there is a tradition, a World War II tradition of, of uh, sailors drawing or putting images of pinups on the bomb, uh, feminizing the bomb by pronoun. So the connection here, you, I mean, I'm just spelling out what you said. And how do you connect that to Ring Song? Is it there too? In Ring Song, um, we have where I uh, live from hand to hand, nude in the marketplace. I stand when I stand and uh, am not sold. That's yeah, a slave go. market that that's being discussed there, and the um, you know physical and sexual slavery that was part of slave markets in the seventeenth, uh, eighteenth, and nineteenth centuries. She's doing a lot of work that's uh, in and out of sequence. And right. in very tight spaces, she used devices that are used by other poets of her generation and earlier. Um, I've got a, a William J. Smith poem from the Harvey Shapiro anthology, the of, poets of, anthology? Uh, the, uh, poets of World War II that uses exactly the same rhyme structure and rhyme scheme. And William J. Smith is one of the two other major poets born the same year as her. The other is William Bronk. Um, you know, she's one year younger than Robert Lowell, one year older than Robert Duncan. But whereas somebody like Josephine Miles, 
often does the kind of device like I rise and live, I rise and live, or in syrup and syrup, repeating the same element in the middle of a line in order to get an end rhyme. One often feels in Joe Miles's work that she's doing it there to fill out a pattern. And you never hear that. Uh, I think in Naomi Raplansky's work, she's really doing it to ratchet up the tension and the emotion in the poem. And that's one of the things that really strikes me and I find most admirable. I want to turn to the political context just a little bit and ask uh, Charles and then Rachel about this um, I know, Charles, because we've talked about it off air, and I know that we both felt this way when we were with Naomi, the New Mass's version of In Syrup, In Syrup, and the longer ring song, we felt, but we like, we preferred both of those. Um, I prefer In Syrup, In Syrup, because with the Wilfred Owen phrase, or part of it in the title, and it may be that just, I'm just... Um, you know, a kind of wannabe red diaper baby type and a, <laughs> and a student. That's such a... F- Talk to your parents, Al. Yeah. Um, and a student, more specifically, a student and scholar of the 30s left as it, uh, as it dif- with difficulty moved into the 40s and 50s. So we have a, a member of the Communist Party of the United States, pretty clear, um, who... Uh, you know, wrote, wrote, sent a poem for Earl Browder on the occasion of his going to jail for perjury, I believe. Um, you didn't really write a poem to Earl Browder unless you were um, in that. It was, it was called the, it didn't have the, it wasn't CPUSA. It was just called CP, I think, at that point. Uh, published in the New Masses in 1947. And Earl Browder, of course, was the uh, chair, the chairman of the Communist Party of the United States of America. Uh, you just didn't do that kind of stuff unless you were committed to the party. And to be in the party between 47 and 52 is really, really being in a, in a minority. So, Maybe I'm just attracted to that and want to celebrate somebody who could have been brave enough to be a communist at that time. Or maybe there's something in the poetry, Rachel and Charles, that would make us – I know Ron has a slightly different view of this, so I'll invite us to talk first. Charles, why do you like the longer – the Wilfred Owen context, the longer ring song? And do you think that these poems got de-radicalized as this poet had to move out necessarily – after the uh, expose of Stalin's crimes well, in nineteen fifty-six, both shorter versions and, so and longer forth. versions have uh, to go back to what you asked me first. Uh, qualities that push against both the kind of condensed uh, lyric address that was in uh, mainstream poetry, as well as the social realism. My preference for the longer versions, the earlier versions in both cases, is not just. Uh, the absolutely central historical reading which they allow for. But I prefer them aesthetically because I think they're wilder, they're more uh, ungainly. I think the shorter versions are better in the conventional lyric sense, which I think is is less interesting. So I'd make an argument that they're more interesting aesthetically, they're more innovative aesthetically, just to remind you of that Owen poem, which is a, a great poem, that it ends the old lie to live and die for the beauty of your country. So when you start a poem in 1947, 
uh, that that's like that that makes that parallel to World War after a great one. victory and everybody right. settling and, down, you know, including all of women the, in all particular. All of the syrup of yeah. the Allied victory. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, I'm, so I'm with the, the Allies on that. It's the muck of the say. Owen poem made into sweet commercialized post-war right. American syrup. That's really right, quite and I smart. think it's a Let's it's a it. very smart thing, and also I mean it pushes against me even now because it's the greatest. It's hard not to see the the victory against the Nazis yeah. in a positive way, but she's really transforming that already, and I think that's why the survivor issue that uh, that Rachel raises is very powerful, and then and the title completely frames the poem in a different way than when you take it away in terms of this critique of what would become the repression of the fifties or what you know what people call American triumphalism. Ring song. When that joy is gone for good, I move the arms beneath the blood. When my blood is running wild, I sew the clothing of a child. When that child is never born, I lean my breast against the thorn. When the thorn brings no reprieve, I rise and live. I rise and live. Uh, as I turn to you, Rachel, I'm just going to throw in a footnote, which is that I think, or it's a footnote with advocacy in it, which is that if you do the work, and it's not that easy to find copies of the new masses, I'll have to say, um, if, you, uh, if you go and do the work and find the new masses version, it's an, that's an act of archival uh, urgency. It's, a, it's an act of his, you know, literary history. And you have the two versions. You've done something special because in the case of Naomi Replansky, you are watching the layers, almost an archaeology of de-radicalization and actually radicalization as you become more and more of a, minor, a political minority going to the, into the 50s. Then putting out a book called Rinsong that has the politics in it but gets a National Book Award nomination. She's pulled off something in 1952 that, was, that is really special. And you add to that a sense that this is a person of the so-called greatest generation, a Rosie the Riveter, somebody who really – who was a communist during that time, presumably. This is a very difficult set of things to navigate and only the literary history of the versions allows you to see how someone with her – attitudes has to change as she goes on. So the que the question to you is, do you agree about the radical aesthetics? Um, do you do you like the original versions? What, what are your observations about what Charles just said? Yeah, I don't know if I, excuse me, <clears throat> see that the radicality has been um, erased and I don't have a particular preference. I mean, I'll, I'll just, I, I am interested in the fact that uh, how the ending changes in the in the two versions of in syrup and syrup, so uh, in the in the dulce decorum, or dulce sorry, um, it ends with how swim how survive in syrup and syrup. So that's her first version, and then in the in the more recent version, it says how can we swim, who hold to our halos, and if you read swim as a different kind of uh, another way of saying survive, right? How can we get through? How can we survive? Um, that's a very different mess. I mean, then there's the final couplet, down we go down and syrup and syrup. It's like we don't swim. We actually drown, right? So That's right. It's a different ending. Yeah. How can we swim? How can we survive? Who hold on? Who, so I, I keep thinking that the on is there. Who hold to our halos? So in this, I feel like there's a, rather than necessarily like 
I, I, there's a lot of irony I feel in these pieces. Like I, I you know, with the bomb bounded, like that when you have that kind of bombastic uh, alliteration, it ends up there's a sarcasm to it. So I feel like here, who hold to our halos, um, it, you could read it as a critique of the teachers and preachers, right? It could it could be not simply just a hailing of the teachers and preachers in the wobbly sense. It's actually like let go of our halo halos. Um, or else we're not going to survive. We're not going to get through, you know this 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 horror that actually never ended and is still on now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the teachers and preachers is is like in Joe Hill is negative that they're selling you a bill of goods. So yeah. I think that they're is the negative. they're the authorities dispensing. And I noticed that the halos maybe in that first mention the halos seem to be just attached to them, but by the end. If you're holding on to your halo, you can't swim. You can't actually do the strokes. It's kind of a literal, like, you go down with your halo. One of the things I think we're not seeing here in either of these versions is that in this curious interregnum between wars, after Korea, when uh, the book Ring Song came out, uh, and prior to Vietnam, the, quote, great American war poem— end quote, uh, was Randall Gerald's Death of the Ball Turret Gunner, a poem about that had World War such II or Korea? about a World War II, uh, a five-line poem that is ultimately about the horrors of uh, death in the sky. Uh, they washed him out with the hose is uh, I, the, the final words of that piece that disappeared almost entirely instantly after the Vietnam War uh, started and people started having much more complicated ideas about America's military power. I think she is foreseeing that more complicated view in both of these poems. And she's tying it in both cases in with capitalism, which which is— Which Jarrell does not do. Let's talk a little bit more about Ringsong. So— Either version, she read and we heard for this uh, Poem Talk episode, the the chapbook 1988 version, the ring song version. Let's add into the record a couple of couplets that are not in the version that we heard earlier. Charles, you start. What's well, one? the one that I think is, is absolutely crucial and is in both is when I stand and am not sold, I build a fire against the cold. F- following right after uh, uh, when I live from hand to hand, nude in the marketplace, I stand. Ron mentions this could be a a version of slavery, but it's also a version of the commodified person, of course, and resisting commodification and taking a stand. Wage slavery. Wage slavery or just taking a stand against the, the prevailing winds. So, Rachel, the winds pile up and the version we're hearing, whether it's the mockingbird ring song approach, when this happened, then this happened, gets us, puts us in mind of a sequence of chain linked events. But this poem, as I understand it, makes the when ironic because it, it, there isn't this, it, there isn't a, an exor, inexorable narrative going forward. Is that right? Um, how do we track the whens? I don't know. I don't know how to answer your question about the when. Um, I am interested in how, again, the ending of this piece, how it changes in the two versions. So, when my hell does not destroy, I leap from ambush on my joy is the longer version. Right. So, that's, a, when the, that's a good moment, you know, when hell doesn't destroy. Well, but then, of course, hell, yeah. you're supposed to 
with the uh, ellipsis, you're supposed to go back and do the ring. Yeah, it's a ring. So that when that joy is gone for good, and basically you just keep reading. You just the keep poem. going. So that's. I mean, that would be my answer to the when. Is it, it's it's actually um, timeless. Like it, it's kind of like what I said before about that the horror never ends. Like it, it it just keeps going. Yeah. But I do think it's there's a difference between when the cold does not destroy and when the hell does when my when the cold does not destroy and when my hell does not destroy in my hell it's one of the um um you know specific places where she's more specific about owning it herself um and the cold is is an, another indeterminacy which happens a lot in these poems like when that joy at the beginning and i move the arms right these this indeterminacy that i i wonder where that comes from like what joy if it's that like what joy is it you know it's it's very ambiguous, and that's one thing that's interesting about this piece. It's it's like I wrote down creepy mother goose. It's not it's not a simple simple couplet. Right, it is definitely creepy mother goose. That's a very good phrase. In the, do we know? You know, wh- where are we? Wh- where, what are some of the scenes we have here? Is it simply all everywhere, all over the place? Do we understand some context here? What's why does she why does the speaker move the arms whose arms beneath the blood? Is this about a death caused by slavery or military incursion? What, what, what where are we, Charles? What world is this? Well, I think it's it's you know it's ontological. It's and actually the especially the longer version. So it's not that it's more historical necessarily, but it's the very dark idea. That even when art, the rhyme, doesn't work, doesn't – because the spell, of course, the spell in this case is also the kind of magical incantatory uh, quality of the formula of the poem itself. When that doesn't work, I know the circle of my hell. When my hell does not destroy. So she she remains in hell. So that's – I guess one way you could say it's a kind of purgatory. One of the things I really like about the longer version is the way the wall – changes position and function from one couplet to the next. Can you read the lines again? um, When the ground becomes too small, I come against a stony wall. When that wall is not to climb, I chalk on it a burning rhyme. Um, And uh, so it's first it's something to be traversed, and then it's something to be written on. But I think there's also the clear allusion to Dante, the circle of my hell, um, you know, that disappears from the longer to the shorter version. And I wondered whether or not that was something that she um, was consciously trying to remove um, the idea of a literary illusion. And it's what she does when she takes Dulce at decorum out of the title of the other piece, you know, so that the reader gets only what's on the page and not what's on the page plus what they got in college. Well, but literary references you could see are not illusions. You know, Stony Wall can also be a poem that you would have known, Mending Wall by Robert Frost too. So, but walls are all through Mother Goose and even Circle of Hell. You know, these are deeply allegorical uh, phrases. And of course, one aspect of it is that it undermines any kind of rational reading. It's not a poem that has a single message. Actually, each line undermines it. Okay. I want us, the four of us, to look back at the risk of repeating something we've already said. I want to look back at the longer version of Ring Song, and I will read the three couplets, the penultimate couplets, penuplets, 
uh, and let's make pedestrian sophomoric paraphrasal common sense out of these because I think there's something metapoetic and important about this. When that ground becomes too small, I come against a stony wall. When that wall is not to climb, I chalk it, I chalk on it a burning rhyme. When the rhyme can work no spell, I know the circle of my help. Those are the three things I want us to And all to taken out of the shorter version. You're reading are, the yes. uh, stuff. So I want us to say version. in a pedestrian fallacy of paraphrase way what's being said there. I'll start. So the ground becomes too small. I'm constrained by the ground that I'm standing on, by the, by the space I have. And so I come against a stoning wall. So it's not like mending wall where this, where's this, if, if I may editorialize, kind of stupid moment of ceremonial fixing the wall, but they both have ample land on either side. This is a person, a speaker who is constrained by space and come up, comes up against the wall. But then in the next couplet, we realize that she cannot climb the wall, and it's only then that she turns to writing. And then someone takes over. But she here. writes, of course, on the wall. So on the wall itself. itself. So she so can, writing cannot get a, out of her predicament. Symbolically, she writes upon the wall that, that, that constrains. So, so that's has why her wall is one of the most, you know, such a primary kind of metaphor for constraint, glass, ceiling. And we're not talking so much about. Uh, the, the gender politics of Naomi Raplansky, but certainly uh, she would have come upon a, as a lesbian in a culture that was extremely misogynist and homophobic. She'd be constantly facing walls where who she was and who she loved would have been excluded. So I chalk on it a burning rhyme would be a way to deal with the symbolic order and the, and the to, to mark it as, so as a writing so follows from writing follows from the limitation both of the space and then of the utility of being able to climb over. So Rachel, the next couplet seems to me crucial. When the rhyme can work no spell, I know the circle of my hell. Can we say something about that? Well, there's that interesting pun of spell, right? So that, that the rhyme can't doesn't create the means to escape this wall, but it also is a meta reference to writing, spelling. Right. Um, so when basically when the poem fails, right? Um, um, you know, that's, I, that's I, I go down, just yeah. like the syrup. That's it. So, and there we have another reference to Mending Wall, the spell. There's a moment where the speaker says, "We, I say a spell and keep the ball, keep the keep the rock from rolling off the the wall." So there, you know, it's kind of an anti-Mending Wall poem in a way, it's by a talking very, about how it's, it's, one is really constrained. It's a very beautiful moment of the recognition of of futility within social and personal struggle. That's why I mentioned what. The, the many struggles of Naomi Raplansky and recognizing at a certain point, at, at least then, I think things, as she mentioned, when we met her in her 90s on the Upper West Side, things had changed a lot. But when she was writing that in a certain way, the circle of her hell would be the, the wall of exclusion that she couldn't be part of the culture. And even, by the way, of the left to some degree. I don't know well, if that she, affected her views about the Communist Party, but aspects of her choices in life would not have been welcome in the old left either. But I mean, she was not on the Upper West Side when she was writing these poems. Was she in not? Brooklyn. She, what, well, was she back in Brooklyn? Because I know she was Rosie the Riveter for a while, and then she was in L.A. as part of that whole phenomenon in the early 1950s and yeah. became a computer programmer, one of she the She was, first, and she was part of, of the, the so-called poets of the non-existent city, Los Angeles in the McCarthy era. Right. Thomas around, McGrath and that uh, Gene Frumpkin and all those I'll, lefties. I'll uh, 
Faro Cardova Hines. Cardova, Cardona Hines. Cardo, yes. And um, that, that whole group that was associated with Coastlines magazine, which was a communist magazine mm -hmm. as well, yeah. The communist view in the new masses and that she would have grown up around her was that poetry should be about social efficacy. It should be about persuading uh, people to overthrow capitalism. It should so be this, clear, too. This is very powerful to me. When the rhyme can work no spell, it has that Blakeian quality. But as a, as a comment on social realism or the efficacy of, of art, she's saying when you realize yeah. that it's not going to change, it's then you're the in the circle of would your have, The communist literary commissars would have called defeatist. Exactly. But they wouldn't have believed in hell. So. Yes. No, so there are all kinds of problems. But in 1947, <laughs> things were so so but it, so, so uh, chaotic in the communist movement it, that she it, could get away with It's one problem. of those sort of self-contradictory phenomena of, of left literature of this period. Michael Harrington has a unintentionally fabulous uh, introduction to Michael Gold's Choose Without Money, which sounds like my Gold friendship having group. been a communist, Harrington having been a socialist. Right. Did exactly. you say Jews Without Money? That's Jews the Michael Gold money. title. Title. Um, you should join that group. <laughs> I think most of my friends are already have. Um, but he talks about what a terrible, how poorly written the novel is. Yet if you read Michael Gold's book, it's a masterpiece of stylism. It is you know, very ornate and well-written and even tidy uh, work of, of literature. And they even someone like Harrington can't see it because he has to see it through that frame. So to follow that really acute thought and relating it, uh, you've already implicitly related it to this work. But this work, I believe, puts the lie to the generalization that was promulgated in the, in the anti-communist 50s that communist writing was always clear and simple and social realism. And that is not true even of the 30s. And it is certainly not true of the 40s. And if you and want to read a great book about it, Al Filler's okay. Counter-Revolution oh, right. of the Word. No, because <laughs> you really... That. No, but it's it's a crucial reference That's essentially in this case. the That's the, the argument. argument. That and here it is in a way that I wouldn't have recognized. Rachel mentions the Jewish, so I want to go into that. It's not a Christian view of hell. Uh, it's also not an Orthodox Jewish view of it, but Christian, certainly not a Christian view of hell. I know the circle of my hell. Hell does not destroy. It, 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 it inhabits. And I think this idea that we're inhabited by hell, that we're living in hell, it's more like sorry to no exit at the same period. When my hell does not destroy, it, 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 I leap from ambush on my joy so that it's the hell— you know, hell is other people in the sort sense. I think she's much more on to that existential view— and Raplansky, which is an identifier name, um, she had various names within party writing and elsewhere. So in the, in the, the letter she wrote to Earl Browder, she was Naomi Ripley. In pu publishing in Poetry Magazine in the 30s, she was so young. In the 30s, she was still young enough. She's lived long enough to have had her poems accepted by Harriet Monroe for Poetry Magazine uh, in the early 30s. Monroe died in 35 or 36, 35, I think. And she had pub poems published in 1934, and she was Naomi Raplan. She was a teenager. She was a teenager. Yeah, she was. And let's to complicate also, uh, not complicate, extend. No, your, no your complicate, point, complicate. Uh, it, when we're talking about what a, what a 30s communist writer was, 
in our discussion, she waxed on about having seen Stein. So she in went person, to see Stein, Stein in person in, in the 30s. As this, a, this kind of, uh, of, 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 of childlike rhythms and so on also are an extension of Stein, which you think would be in, inimical. And she also mentioned working on Brecht translations. So if you combine her you know, very powerful early knowledge of Stein and Brecht you know, with the Blake and all the rest and the social realism, you get a, a very complex understanding of what the politics of the poetic Beautiful. form is in her work. Thank you. What I want to do, because we could go on about this, we're all getting excited about all this kind of complicated uh, lefty modernism. Um, how about if we each go around and say one quick thing that you came to this discussion intending to say but didn't have a chance to, something either general about what Raplansky is doing or something specific about the poems. Ron, can we start with you? And it's got to be brief. Uh, it will be brief. I just want to recommend people who enjoy her work should take a look at the uh, Godin Black Sparrow Press book, which is really quite wonderful. And also take a look at the poetry of Edith Jenkins, the late mother of the uh, choreographer Margie Jenkins, and who was the wife of a West Coast Communist Party leader who was involved with a longshoreman. Um, it's a very parallel kind of story, and and the work of Tilly Olson might be seen as a, as a prose narrative bridge. Tell me a riddle. Uh, tell me a riddle, one of the great books of all time. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Charles, a final thought on these poems? or well, on just, just go back to the line, when I stand and am not sold, I build a fire against the cold. I think this discussion, you know, uh, gives a lot of resonance to those lines. Could also think of I take my stand the Southern Agrarian uh, uh, manifesto, which this is so much against. It's the opposite. But the idea of taking a stand and refusing to be sold and to sell out, creating fire, also relates to the hell image too. And the fire of hell is very powerful. That's great. Thank you, Rachel. Final thought on this stuff. Um, well, further to what Charles was saying about her being a lesbian, I, it's interesting to look at, I chalk on it, a burning rhyme as as referring to desire, perhaps. But there's also a sense of anger in that and how anger comes out in both of these poems is is interesting to me. It's, it's they, they are very angry pieces. So, and it seems um, would have been hard for a woman uh, to be doing at that time. And I'll just throw out some some interesting facts. Um, she was, Raplansky was associated with California Quarterly as well as Coastlines Magazine. And her colleagues in that period, uh, we mentioned a few, Alvaro Cardona Hine, a, p a poet, Nicaraguan, I think by birth, a, a poet and painter, William Pillen, who'd been active in the left, uh, literary left in the 30s, Bert Myers, Thomas McGrath, Gene Frumpkin. Uh, and Coastline magazines had an ongoing argument with the beatniks who were living in Venice at the time. And if you want to dig up that argument, it's a fascinating argument. Um, another little factoid, Carl Shapiro, who was the editor at the time of Poetry Magazine when this book Ring Song came out, sought a, a reviewer for it and picked out Parker Tyler the gay surrealist modernist to review Ring Song, which was a really inspired choice. I recommend people go and look at that review that Parker Tyler did of this. Uh, two more things. Uh, a review that Naomi Plants Replansky did in Masses in Mainstream, which is the successor to the new Masses, uh, by Communist Party theorist Charles Humboldt, uh, by Replansky opens with the following line, 
which was definitely not party line. The hostility of capitalist society to art is reflected in the art itself. So she's talking about the primacy of form there, not a Humboldtian argument. And finally, just to throw out this sort of potpourri of things, Raplansky, uh, when I first began to be very interested in Noam and Raplansky, it was the late 80s or early 90s, and I was having a conversation, I guess it wasn't here, it was in Los Angeles, uh, and I was at a party with David Anton and Jerome Rothenberg, and uh, the host of the party, Marjorie Perloff, recommended that they talk to me about who I might study, who was interested, who was a, a leftist poet who was also interested in modernism, and Anton and Rothenberg both instantly recommended Naomi Raplansky, whom they had known from New York. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us to, or all of us, if you're quick, to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something poetically good to hail or commend someone, something going on in the poetry world. Who wants to gather paradise or make a recommendation? Ron. 2016 was the 50th anniversary of the St. Mark's Poetry Project, which uh, is one of the oldest, I think it's second only to City Lights books, of the counterculture poetry institutions of the United States, and which is a fabulous resource. They're beginning to put all of their uh, readings online. Their newsletter is absolutely worth the $50 a year that uh, you need to send in order to get it. And I think that even if you were a poet in, say, Needles, California, where, say, a young Alice Notley of the future might be growing up today, it would be worth reaching out to the uh, St. Mark's uh, Poetry Project and their newsletter. That's fantastic. Happy birthday. So, 1967, 2017, am I right? Uh, 1966, 60, 2016. to 2016. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ron. Charles Bernstein, Gather Some Paradise. Close Listening Radio Series available on Penn Sound has the Naomi Raplansky conversation that uh, Al and I did, but also this week I taped two more that I highly recommend, one with the wonderful Will Alexander and the other one with the great Lisa Robertson. Thank you very much. Rachel Zoff, recommend something? Um, yeah, I'd like to put a shout-out to the <clears throat> writers involved with our trans and gender nonconforming uh, youth group that we started at Kelly Writers House. So someone like Trish Salah, whose uh, book came out, li book Lyric Sexology came out with uh, Roof Books a couple years ago and worked by uh, Kabi Ade and Sorel, Saray Jarrell Johnson and people like that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I guess my uh, Gathering Paradise is back to Naomi Raplansky, uh, a, a poem that she doesn't like to read. I don't think we have a recording of it and I don't think it was republished. Uh, it's called The Six Million. It's an ob obvious reference to the genocide of World War II, and it's, it was published in Masses and Mainstream in November in 1951, and it is in there. Yeah. That's great. And that book is, the title of it is Collected, Collected Poems. Poems, Naomi Raplansky. Well, that's all the uh, horror gelded by the happy ending we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing 
And the Kelly Writers House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Ron Silliman, Rachel Zoff, and Charles Bernstein, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be joined by Joe Park, Herman Beavers, and Ross Gay to talk about a poem by Patrick Rosal called Instance of an Island. This is Al Filrys, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.